Welcome to the Sermon Podcast for Canton Church. We gather every week in Canton, Georgia to worship and grow together through God's Word. We exist because generations matter. We hope you are encouraged by today's message. How's everybody doing today? We doing good? Man, I don't know if you can tell, but my faith is pretty high. There's an excitement in me uh, just because of what God has done in these 21 days, what I am anticipating God to do all day long. Uh, and so I'm hopeful that you'll be here tonight for our night of worship. It's going to be a great time, 6 o'clock. We're going to join our two services together into one night of worship. So we're expecting a great crowd, a great time. Our, our band and worship team uh, has prepared for just a night where kind of the time restraints come off. You know, with two services, sometimes even though we push back 11 o'clock service every now and then, uh, we definitely are trying to maximize our time on Sunday mornings. But uh, for sure, tonight, uh, the time limit's off, and so we're going to just spend some time in the presence. Of God. So we invite you to be here with us. It's going to be a great night. A couple of years ago, Corey and I uh, went on a vacation. And, uh, you know, when you've got four kids, one of the major pieces of vacation is scheduling out childcare. I think that's the, that's the key piece if you got one child. But for sure, if you got four kids, it's, it's trying to figure out who could watch four kids and not lose their minds. That's really what we're trying to do. And so uh, grandparents are a great place for us to start looking. And so uh, my dad had agreed that he was going to help watch the kids. And so what we did is we traveled by car to him in Cincinnati. We met him in Cincinnati, Ohio, which is a few hours south of where he's at, and obviously a few hours north for us. Uh, So we went to Cincinnati. We met there. We dropped the kids. We spent the night in Cincinnati, and then we went the next morning. We left at 4 a.m. from the house there where we were at to the airport in Cincinnati to fly to Miami where we were going to catch our cruise ship. Now, here you got to know this about me. We were actually just talking about this last night. When I'm thinking about trips or vacations or things like that, I've got a plan. Now, I'm not so itinerary driven that I'm telling you like which exit we're going to stop at for the bathroom in anticipation of the trip. But like I've got a, I got a plan. I got some details. I know what we're doing. And so I had looked at all the possible flights to get us from Cincinnati to Miami. Well, that's not a, a, a great direct flight, or at least it wasn't when we were traveling. So we're going to have to go through some other city. And so leaving from Cincinnati, the best option to get us to Miami in time for us to catch the boat was to fly from Cincinnati to Detroit and then to Miami. Now, even when I looked at it, I thought, hey, no problem. I don't understand why we've got to go north to go south, but that's fine. We'll do it. Uh, I don't have to drive. We're flying. It's great. But I knew that in Detroit, we were going to have just a little over an hour to catch the connection flight, which I've been to the Detroit airport. It's a pretty large airport. The way that it's laid out makes it a little difficult from time to time to catch flights, but we had a little more than an hour. I had even done the research. I knew uh, how often that first flight left on time, how often it landed on time, how often the second flight took off on time. So I knew the percentages, okay, we've got a pretty good chance of not having any trouble. We're fine. Except, here's what you need to know about me. I have what I call Isaac's luck. Now, here's what Isaac's luck looks like. You probably got your own version of this. Here's what Isaac's look like, Isaac's luck looks like for me. When I get into a lane of traffic, it slows down. When I get into a, a line at the register at the grocery store, the girl's computer shuts down. When I pull up to Arby's and order curly fries, they're out. True story. When I go to Krispy Kreme to get glazed donuts, they're out. True story. Uh, so, like, it just happens. If you, if you travel with me, just know we're going to have some unforeseen delays. It's just going to happen because I have Isaac's luck. So, when we got on the flight in Cincinnati, we had decided that what we were going to do to make sure that, you know, with a little tighter turnaround time, we were going to get to Miami 
And so we decided we're not going to check our bags. We're going to carry our bags on. Uh, you know, we, we're going on a cruise ship. We don't need tons and tons of things. It's warm weather. We don't need big bulky jackets and stuff. So we, we're going to carry our bags on. But when we got to the plane, the girl said, I'm so sorry. Uh, you're going to have to gate check those. But we're going to let you pick them up plane side in Detroit. I was like, okay, fine. So we did that. We handed them the bags. We get on the flight. In the air from Cincinnati to Detroit, we hit turbulence. The guy told us he had to slow down. We were going to be a little late landing. There was some weather in the area. And so now I'm watching on my Delta app, and we now have shrunk our hour plus time to about 34 minutes is really what we have. If you've ever been to the Detroit airport, it's, I don't know, it's like walking from here to Mississippi to get to your gate sometimes. So... We, we land, and while we're sitting on the plane, I told Corey, I said, here's the deal. We've only got a few minutes. You go ahead when you get off the plane and just go to our gate and just sweet talk them and just give me some time. I'm going to stand by the plane, get our bags, and then I'll get to there as fast as I can. So she gets off the plane. She takes off. She's going to the gate. We're landing at B5. We're taking off at A76, which is literally Isaac's Luck, the last gate in the A terminal. It's not like Atlanta where they're side by side. It's like you just walk forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Starts at one, goes to 76. So I thought, okay, so I'm going to stand there. I get off the plane. I'm standing in the little concourse thing there, the little, little uh, hallway. And the lady says, I'm so sorry to tell you this, but the little elevator thing that brings the bags from the bottom, Isaac's Luck here, it's jammed. So I had been in the front of the line because I got off, I was shoving little old ladies out of the way. I had been standing in the front of the line. Now, because they're bringing him up at the door, I'm at the back of the line, right? So first should be last. I don't know. There's a biblical principle in there. I'm not really sure. So God's teaching me patience. I'm standing there. I'm really frustrated. I, you know, I'm, I'm talking loudly to anybody that wants to listen. Got a connection flight to make, really trying to make the connection flight, you know, just all kinds of stuff. So I'm standing there. I'm last in line. They, they bring the bags up, and it's only my bag, now, I'm waiting for Corey's bag, too. So I'm asking the lady. I said, I'm missing my wife's bag. She said, you know what? I think that may have been put on the little, and I forget the term, but the little elevator thing, when it got jammed, hers may be on that. Isaac's luck. She said, but I think they got it working now. So I move from the door back to the side where they're going to bring the bag up. I get there. The door comes up halfway and gets jammed. I'm thinking, we're never going to make the boat. We're just not going to make it to Miami. So I, I wait, I wait. I was like, sir, can I, just, can I just climb in the door and get my wife's bag? I think I see it. It's like three bags. He's like, no, no, we're getting them all. We're going to bring them back to the door. Now I walk back to the door. I'm looking at the watch. I'm like, there's no way that I'm going to make the plane. Corey's going to leave me because she's going on the boat. Like she's just, with what she's wearing, she's going on this cruise. I'm not going to make it. So I get back there. They finally give it to me. So I've got her checked, her, her carry-on bag, my carry-on bag, and, and, and like a, her personal bag, I think, so she could go quickly. So I've got those. I start running like someone's chasing me with a knife is really how fast I was running. I, I don't know if you know this, but I'm a world-class sprinter. And so I, I ran that fast through the airport. I get to the A terminal, and I see how long the term, and, and immediately... My energy is depleted. I'm like, I'm never going to make it. Corey has now texted me. She said, you have five minutes until they close the door. I've got 76 gates to go. And so something on the inside of me rises up, and I thought, not today, devil. I'm going to make this flight, right? So I take off running faster than I've ever run in my entire life. 
And, and halfway there in Detroit, there's the little train thing. And so I'm going to try to catch the train to buy some time and to catch my breath. But when I get there, the train's not there and it says four minutes and I don't have that long to wait. So I just keep running. I get to the plane. I kid you not. I know this sounds like some kind of like preacher exaggerated story. I promise you, the girl is closing the door. Corey's nowhere in sight. She's already on the plane. She's left me, right? She's closing the door, but it's not yet latched. I'm screaming at her. Stop! I'm here! She turns around and looks at me. She said, you are so lucky. I said, that's really what I've been feeling all day long, honestly. <laughs> because I have Isaac's luck, and sometimes it was, no, I was like, you're kidding. I'm lucky? No, this has been a terrible, mis-. here's the deal. I thought it was impossible for me to catch that flight. Impossible. Because I had experience of, you know, tight travel times, and, and I knew how fast I could run, and I knew how far I had to go, and I didn't. But thank the Lord, what I thought was impossible was not really impossible. And that's really where I want us to spend some time today, is looking at this idea of impossibility. This last few weeks, we've been talking out of Hebrews chapter 11 about, the, about finding faith to do big things. And we're looking at these stories from Hebrews 11 that connect to these Old Testament characters that really help us to see some people that trusted God for big things. First week, we talked about Abraham and his faith to believe God. The second week, we, we, we really trusted or talked about Sarah and, and her uh, faith there to, to trust God to do something that was crazy and it didn't seem like it was possible. And last week, we looked at Noah and the idea of the faith to obey, to build a boat. And, and I mean, honestly, every week we've kind of built on these stories that go together from the Old Testament. But today, I could go a lot of different ways. If you read through Hebrews 11, which I know some of you have done because you've shared that with me, there are some amazing stories there in Hebrews 11. These stories that I could have chosen today, I mean, the idea that Moses was saved by his parents, even when the, the government there was trying to, to kill off everybody his age. And so his parents decided they're going to save him. There was something special about this boy, and so he's saved. And then I could have gone not just to that story. I could have gone to the story of Joseph, this one little passage there that really connects to the story that's you know 12 or 13 chapters in the book of Genesis where Joseph dies after his family has been delivered there to Egypt and they're saved because of his place in the government. Uh, he, he dies, but before he does, he asks his sons, he says, hey, when you leave Egypt, when you leave captivity, which I know is going to happen because of the promises of God, make sure that even though you're going to bury my bones here in Egypt that you take my bones back to the promised land. Like this powerful story. I could have talked about the story of Rahab, who was this woman with a very bad reputation, uh, and she hid the spies, God's people, as they came into the city where she lived, even though she knew that these spies would be a part of a group of people that were coming to destroy her city. And God saved her because of her goodwill towards God's people. I could have gone a lot of different places. Even Hebrews 11 ends with the idea that there's so many other stories we could tell but there's not time. But today, I want to go to a part of Hebrews 11 that connects to two stories in the Old Testament that are perhaps two of my favorite stories, and they really help to grow my faith. And my hope is that as we conclude our 21 days and we really enter into this new season of what we're trusting and believing God for, that this will also grow your faith as well. So where we're at in Hebrews 11 today is verse 29 and verse 30. This is what it says. It says, by faith, the people, talking about the people of Israel, the children of Israel, they passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell 
after the army had marched around them for seven days. Now, what we see here is we actually see that there's two separate stories that are within these two verses. Each verse is really the summary of a different story. The first story is setting up here the idea that Moses had been called by God to go and set God's people free from the oppression of Pharaoh and Egypt. And after a series of events, including plagues and the power of God revealed to Pharaoh, he agrees to let God's people go free. But only once they leave, he changes his mind and he sends his armies after them. And the people reach the edge of the Red Sea. So get in your mind this picture of God's people leaving captivity. They've seen the power of God demonstrated over these last few days. And so they are walking out of all they've known now for hundreds of years. And they're walking out of captivity, walking out of oppression, not really fully understanding all that God may be doing in their future. And they're walking out and maybe they get wind that Pharaoh's army is chasing behind them. And so now they're trying to figure out how fast can we go to make sure that they don't catch us because they've changed our mind. But as they're walking quickly away from their enemies, they see another enemy. They see the walls of the Red Sea. They see this body of water that there's no way they can get around. And so we know the story, so many of us. We're familiar with the details of the story. It even tells us there that they walked on dry land. But the idea is put yourself in their situation in the moment where they were walking to the Red Sea when it was still one full body of water in front of them with their enemies chasing behind them. And so what you have is you have them surrounded. There's nowhere for them to go. There's no way possible that they can continue to move forward away from their enemies. But if they turn around, they run into their enemies. There's no possible chance for them to get out of this circumstance, except that God had already promised that they were going to be free. Look at the rest of this story here. In Exodus chapter 14, we see this play out in kind of the long form of the story. Exodus 14, beginning in verse 21, it says this, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course When the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right and their left. Now that's eight or nine verses of scripture here. But a couple of things that I want us to to, to realize is that God kept his promise that they would walk out of their captivity and walk out of their oppression and walk into their freedom. So even though the circumstances looked impossible to them, even though they weren't sure how they were going to make it out and how the water was in front of them and their enemy was behind them, God did the miraculous and Moses stretched out the staff as God had commanded 
and the waters rolled back. But in the very first verse, what we read is that Moses stretched out his hand, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night. Even then, even in this miracle, even in one of the most amazing stories of the Old Testament, God did not choose to do the miracle instantaneously. So often, as we talk about, we want God to do the miracle immediately. We pray and ask God to do something now. I need you, God. It's like the the prayer we pray in math class or science class where we're like, God, I got a test right now. And I need the miraculous to be implanted into my mind to help me remember that we need God to do something right now. Somebody's sick and we say, God, we need you to do this right now. We get in a fight with our spouse. We're not sure if this is going to be the last fight. God, I need you to do a miracle right now. And yet in this miracle, God chose to roll the waters back all night long, which means to me that if the, if the Israelites walked across on dry ground, that they had to wait at water's edge for the waters to be rolled back while their enemy continued to pursue. They're standing there waiting on the waters to be rolled back, and yet their enemies are still chasing after them, and God is making them wait so that they can walk across. And I don't know how it went. I don't know if it kind of rolled back all at once. I don't know if it kind of rippled back so that they began to walk across on dry land, but they could still see water in front of them, and and it was still rolling back. And so every time they walked a little further, it just stayed dry in front of them, but it continued. I don't know how that played out, but I just know that God chose to do the miracle all night long. It could be the miracle that you're seeking God for doesn't happen instantaneously. It happens in a process. Your marriage is saved one counseling session at a time. Your kids come to find life in Christ even though they've walked away one phone call from you at a time, one text message from you at a time, one birthday card from you at a time, one invitation to church from you at a time. It could be that your financial miracle that you're seeking isn't something that God just drops 10,000 extra dollars in your checking account. It could be that he does it every single month that you stick to your budget. Like God can do the miraculous and he can do it in a moment, but sometimes he does it in the process. And so the question is, do we trust God to do the impossible if he chooses not to do it in an instant? And so we see that in verse 29 of Hebrews 11, this incredible story of how it played out. And then you move to the second story and you're kind of fast forwarding in the children of Israel about 40 or 50 years. They've come across they're, they're, they walk uh, out into the desert, out away from their captives, and they spend uh, time there in the desert really for God to get the Egypt out of them. Like they can't walk into the promised land and trust God to be their provider in the promised land because they're still holding on to the idea that their slave masters in Egypt are, who, are the people that provide for them. And so as God is teaching them this process in the desert of trusting him as he provides manna and he provides food every single day, he gives them specific instructions. Every single day when you walk out of your tent, there will be enough food for that day. And you can't try to get food for two days because you don't trust that I'm going to show up the next day. You just got to get food for today. Except on the sixth day, you get enough for the sixth day and the seventh day. And on that day only, it won't spoil. There was this constant battle in the children of Israel, of learning how to trust God. It's a battle that you and I so often fight. Do we actually trust God day by day? Well, then eventually Moses and an entire generation, they die off and they don't get to walk into the promised land because of their lack of trust in God as their provider. And so there's a new leader for the children of Israel. His name is Joshua. 
Joshua is one of my favorite uh, characters in the Old Testament, and the book of Joshua is one of my favorite books in the Old Testament. And so in Joshua chapter 1, God says, hey, now it's time. You're the leader. Moses, my servant, is dead. I will be with you just as I was with him, and I want you to go and take the land. I want you to go and walk into the promised land and to take hold of the promise that I I made to your your father, Abraham, and I've extended that promise through Isaac, and I I want you to take a hold of the land. And so he says, you're going to walk across the waters, a new new body of water. You're going to walk across the waters, and you're going to go into the promised land. But when you get there, there's going to be some enemies, and so I'm going to deliver you from those enemies. And so they, they go into the promised land, and the first battle that they have to fight is against the city of Jericho. Jericho is a fortified city. It's a city that has an incredible wall around it. And there are people inside that are defending themselves, but defending themselves against any enemy that would come against them. And so the children of Israel coming to them would be an enemy that they're going to try to defend themselves. They're going to try to attack back. They're going to try to fight back against the Israelites. But these are not warriors. These are former children of slaves. And so I don't know how good their battle preparations had been other than the fact that God said, I will be with you. And so Rahab, the story that we talked about just a minute ago that we could have spent our time in today, when the two spies come into Jericho, her house was kind of in the wall, if that tells you anything about the size of the walls, in the wall. And she tells to those two spies, we've already heard that the Lord your God is with you. We know that you're coming. We know that you're coming. So these people in Jericho are preparing themselves for battle. And so as they prepare themselves for battle, and and I've said this phrase a dozen or a couple dozen times from this stage and other stages since our inception, But God gives them the worst military strategy in the history of mankind. He doesn't say take the battering rams. He doesn't say take the fire sticks. He doesn't say take any of that. He says, here's what you're going to do. You're going to walk around the walls of the city for six days, one time, and be completely silent. Don't say a word. Now, I'm assuming any fortified city that I'm ever familiar with in history, they've got people you know, watchmen at the top of the wall, they're paying attention to what's happening outside the city so they can recognize when attack is coming. So there's got to be guys standing at the top of the wall and they see a million people walking towards Jericho and beginning to march around the city. But they're not saying anything. They don't have their weapons out. And so I'm assuming as that takes place, the watchmen are calling back and saying, hey, I don't know if you guys know this, but like these people may be crazy. They might be a little bit off their rocker. I don't know, because they're not fighting us. They're just walking around quietly. Nobody's talking. Nobody's speaking. I assume, because I've been around people that, you know, uh, don't really understand the plans or what's happening, and so I assume they get back to the campfire that night, and they go, I think Joshua's a little bit crazy. I don't think Joshua's near as smart as Moses was. I don't think Joshua's really set, you know, cut out to be our leader. And so they're probably talking about what's happening there with uh, their, their, their leadership, But day two, they go out, they walk around. Day three, they go out, they walk around, they come back. Day four, they walk around. Day five, they walk around. Day six, they walk around. Day seven, they have enough time to walk around seven times. So that tells me that the first six days, it doesn't take them a long time to walk around one time, and then they just got to go back and sit and wait. And this is what it says in the book of Joshua, chapter 6, verse 15. On the seventh day, they rose early. At the dawn of the day, and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Verse 20. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured 
the city. Now, a few things that stand out to me in this passage that we just read is that there was an order to what God had told Joshua to do. There's an order to the, who's supposed to be up front. There was an order to when you were supposed to cheer and shout. There was an order to when the instruments were supposed to play. God had a plan it wasn't the plan that Joshua probably would have drawn up, for, drawn up for himself. It wasn't the plan that the military leaders of the people would have drawn up for themselves. But God had a plan. And that plan was so similar to what God did in the days of Moses when he was setting his people free. Hey, I've got a plan. There's going to be plagues. There's going to be an order. There's going to be a thing here where we capture the heart of Pharaoh and the people. And he's going to eventually relent. Probably wasn't the way the children of Israel would have set it up themselves. It probably wasn't the way that Moses would have done it. But God had a plan. And so even though in this circumstance it was very similar to what the children of Israel experienced when they're walking towards the water with their enemies coming behind them, it seemed impossible. And yet God had said to them, the city is yours. Look at this in, in verse 2. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men. of power. See, I have given Jericho into your hand. Well, here's the problem. He spoke that before Jericho was actually in their hand. He spoke that when the walls were still up. He spoke that before they had marched around the city in the directed number of times. Like he spoke this before it happened. But what we said in week one out of Hebrews chapter 11 verse one is that faith is something we hope for. Something that we can't even see yet. And so God was declaring something to Joshua that he couldn't yet see but didn't make it any less of a reality even though it seemed impossible to Joshua or to the people, because it was connected to the promise of God, it was very much possible. The idea of impossibility, if you define that word, impossible means not able to occur, not able to exist, not able to be done. But here's my question. Says who? Who says it's impossible? What are we constrained to that would make us think that it's impossible. It seems to me that this definition is only bound by our human or earthly experiences and the factors that come with it. Earthly factors tell us what we believe now is impossible. I want you to think right now of the things that you need God to do most in your life and why do they seem impossible to you? Do they seem impossible because it's connected to other people? And what if they don't obey? What if they don't follow through on what they said? Does it seem impossible because of the amount of time that's needed? Does it seem impossible because of money that may be needed? Does it seem impossible because of space or gravity or the strength or weaknesses that you possess or other people possess? Because so often we limit God to believe that something's possible because of the impossibilities that exist in our human context. But Isaiah 58 tells me that his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And his ways are higher than my way. He is not constrained by the things that I am constrained by. None of the things that we use in our human understanding for impossibility matter in God's economy. I'll give you a few examples. He used a little boy and one out of five rocks to bring down a giant. He called a disciple to get out of the boat and walk on water. He used the lunch of a little boy and the disciples to put it into the hands of his son Jesus to make lunch possible for thousands of people. He healed a blind man with enough mud that he made from spit. He used a scaredy cat disciple to preach to thousands and launch a church. He rolled back water to let his people cross and then he swallowed up their enemies by the same body of water and he brought down a wall to allow his people to take the city. 
Here's the reality for you today. I'm going to ask the band to come. He has healed people sicker than you. He has saved people who are far worse than you. He's delivered addicts worse than you. The impossible mindset is one of, I can't. I can't. I can't. That's one of the phrases that when my kids say it, I immediately correct them. I don't want them to be limited by them thinking, I can't. Hey, I need you to go do, I I can't. No, 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 you're going to need to say something different because you actually can. And even though you don't think you can, I know you can. And the reality is my faith in God says that even though I can't, I believe that God can. My faith, my hope is, is in the things that are unseen because I believe in God. I can't be healed. I can't be saved. My finances can't be fixed. I can't get a job. I can't fix my marriage. I can't get through to my kids. But God can. God's power turns I can't into why can't. Why can't you do this, God? Why, why couldn't you heal my marriage? Why couldn't you fix my finances? God, I can't, but why can't you do that? God, my faith and my hope in you says that I can't, but why can't you? It's change in my mindset that allows me to trust and believe that God can do everything that I can't do. Sometimes my inability to believe is because the impossibility is connected to timing. I want to be healed now. We talked about this a few minutes ago. But we we hear the bad reports from the doctor right now. We want our kids to be saved right now. But they, they seem to be off, squandering away everything that we deposited into them. We, we want to see God do impossible things in our lives, but we just don't see it yet. The phrase that I kind of felt the Lord impress on my heart that I, I, I've used to really grow my own faith over the last few years is this phrase. Just because he hasn't doesn't mean he won't. And just because he isn't doesn't mean he can't. Let's unpack that a little. Just because he hasn't done it yet doesn't mean he won't do it. And just because he isn't doing it now doesn't mean he can't do it. Here's what I recognize. When my mom was sick with cancer and battling cancer and really fighting for her life, I was praying and believing for God to heal her. And a wise wise pastor said to me one day as I was talking about what I was trying to wrestle with about faith and about prayer, he said, you know what happened to every single person that Jesus healed in the Bible? They eventually died of something else. Their healing was not for forever. Their healing was to demonstrate the power of God in that moment. And so it doesn't mean that If you're sick right now and you've been praying and believing that God won't do it, it just means he hasn't done it yet. It doesn't mean that just because he isn't doing what you're seeking God to do right now that he can't do it. It just means he hasn't done it yet. But the question is, will you and I believe and trust God enough to continue to walk around the walls on day one and day two and day three and day four and day five and day six, believing that if God said the city is ours, that the city really is ours. Will we trust him after we've walked around six days and still haven't seen any change in our circumstances? To on day seven, we would walk around six times in a row in complete and utter silence, believing that if God said the city is ours, that it really is ours. Would we believe enough that when the trumpet sounds on the seventh time around the city, 
that even though we've been silent for six and a half days, that we would give a shout, trusting and believing that perhaps our worship in anticipation of what God is going to do could be the key to unlocking the miraculous from God. Would we trust God and believe God enough that if he said we're going to walk out of captivity and not be held by our captors, that even though we see the waters in front of us and the enemy coming from behind, that God is going to do something miraculous. So we're willing to wait all night long at the edge of the water as God rolls it back by an eastern wind so that we can walk across on dry land. So the question for all of us today is what impossible thing do you need God to do? What impossible thing do you need God to do? What is it that you're trusting God, hoping God, believing God, faithing God for in your life? But your human understanding of time and space and money and other people, your own strengths tells you that it's not possible for that to be done. What are you believing God to do that is impossible because just because he hasn't doesn't mean he won't and just because he isn't doesn't mean he can't I believe that God is a God of impossibilities and my faith is pretty high for you today and so I want you to bow your head and close your eyes just for a moment first if you would say to me like we always provide the opportunity if you would say to me today Jeremy I know I'm not in a relationship with Jesus Christ and I don't want to leave this place with that reality staying intact. I want to trust God for my salvation. I want to ask him to forgive my sins and lead and guide my life. Would you lift your hand right where you're at today? We want to pray for you, pray with you. Thank you so much. And I'm going to ask those of you that respond here in just a moment to this next prayer to do something a little bit different. If you would say to me, Jeremy, I'm trusting God to do something that I think may be impossible. I'm trusting God to deliver me from something and I've tried everything I know to do. I've done all the steps, all the things and I'm asking God for deliverance today. I'm asking God for healing today, physical, emotional, relational. I'm asking God for healing. It seems impossible, but I'm asking him to do it. I'm asking God for a financial miracle and I don't know where it's gonna come from. It's probably impossible, but I'm trusting God and believing God today. If that's you, would you stand up right where you're at? Would you just stand up right where you're at? You're not gonna be alone. There's already people standing. If you're trusting and believing God for something that you believe to be impossible, you're just gonna stand up right where you're at. Right where you're at. Anybody else? Anybody else? Anybody else? Anybody else? Now I want everybody to open their eyes and look at me. Look around this room. Look around this room. I believe with all of my heart that every single prayer in this place will be answered. Every single prayer represented in this room will be answered. That's what I believe. I'm believing. My faith is built on something I hope for. It's in the evidence of things I cannot see with my natural eyes. But here's what I believe. If a room full of people who are called by God who have prepared themselves over these last 21 days to trust and believe God for the impossible will call on the name of the Lord. I believe he will do what we're asking him to do. He is not constrained by what we are constrained by. And if he can bring down the walls of a city with the worst military strategy ever, 
if he can cause the waters to be rolled back when the enemy is chasing behind, I believe he can do whatever you're asking him to do. So here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do right now. I'm going to ask every person that's not standing, if you're close enough to just lay hands on somebody nearby you. If you're not close enough to do that, then just stretch your hand towards somebody that's standing. Look around you, look around you, just find somebody that's nearby and just stretch your hands this way. And even if you're not comfortable doing that, I want everybody in the room to agree together in prayer about whatever it is that these people are praying for. You may not know what it is, but just say, God, we're trusting and believing you to do the impossible. Let's join together right now. God, we love you and we thank you, God, that you hear us when we pray. And God, our faith is high right now. We believe that you hear us and you respond to us. And God, I'm asking you now to do the miraculous. I'm asking you to do the impossible. God, I'm believing for physical healings in this place that today you're doing a work in somebody's body that will astound their doctors and contradict the reports that exist on some system somewhere. God, I'm asking you to bring a marriage that seems dead back to life right now. I'm asking you, God, to deliver children that seem too far gone. God, I'm asking you to free those who are addicted to something in their life, God. I believe that you can do it. You're not constrained by the things we're constrained by, God, but you can do the impossible. And so, God, we lean into your strength even when we feel weak. We ask you to accomplish something that makes no sense in our earthly wisdom. But God, you are a God who does the impossible. And so God, today we find the faith to trust you for big things. Hear our prayers today, God. We believe today, God, that you are more than enough. And so God, hear our prayers. God, we can't wait to hear the stories. We can't wait to hear the testimonies of what you do in the prayers that are prayed in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen and amen and amen. Let's sing this together. Lift it up. Thank you again for listening. If you would like more information about today's message or about our church, we invite you to visit us at cantonchurch.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash cantonchurchga. 